Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Hope Lower Town. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here, and and uh, glad to be here with you this morning. Glad you're able to at least get here safely. I know it was pretty pretty icy. I was here before it started to sprinkle freezing rain everywhere, but uh, they've got salt, so got it out, and we're good to go. Um, boy, this is the first time that sun is just right. I'm going to scoot over just a little bit. It is coming right through that stained glass window right in my face, so in a couple minutes it won't be in my face, but that's all right. Happy New Year. Uh, glad you're able to uh, celebrate. Uh, I don't know, we don't normally do anything for New Year's, but we had uh, my wife's sister, uh, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law over and played some games and watched the, uh, the ball drop, um, you know, an hour later and watched uh, Rob Gronkowski make a fool of himself like he normally does. But anyways, uh, glad you're able to be here. Um, we're going to be doing kind of two, two weeks of looking at uh, Hope Community Church in 2020. Uh, we, we started something in this last, this last year called uh, a 2020 initiative, and I'm not really going to talk about that today so much as I will probably more so next week. Um, but looking at what, what really makes us tick. And so I, I, I really, uh, I have a, a, a lot of Bible today. And um, there was one week, I remember Pastor Steve, my boss um, in downtown Minneapolis, he actually had mentioned, there was one week after the service, he went up to his wife and just asked, you know, what, what, you know, how was it? You know, give me some feedback. And she just said, um, you used a lot of words, is what she, what she said. And so today, I know I'm going to use a lot of words, uh, but I want to be able to um, use a lot of scripture to be able to talk about the points that I want to be making uh, today. And so uh, if you have a handout or just up on the screen, just looking at Hope Community Church in, in Lower Town uh, in 2020. Hope Community Church Lower Town in 2020. And looking at what, what is it that, that makes us tick? Who are we as a church? Why do we do certain things the way that we do them? Uh, why don't we do them other ways? And, and that we're going to be looking at some changes uh, in the future and, and, and good things, I hope. And, and looking at, uh, I know that once, um, maybe every other, once every other month, or especially once a quarter, looking at doing something a little bit more liturgical, a little bit more high church in the sense of just explaining why we do what we do. Uh, maybe reading the creed, uh, reading and praying corporately, confessing together uh, corporately, talking about communion and why we do that, uh, busting out these 7,000 pipes uh, behind me. Um, not, we're not going to take them out, but you know, we're going to use them and and um, and that kind of thing. And so I'm just I'm I'm excited about that. Uh, if you could pray for me this next week, uh, me and the other pastors we're we're traveling traveling up to a camp, and we call it every year. It's called Pastor Study Break, and uh, I've got a lot to to get done this next week. But I'm looking forward to really just kind of scheduling out the whole year. Um, I know what I'm preaching next week, but I don't know what I'm preaching in two weeks. And so, and then we'll take care of the whole year, which is fantastic. And maybe even two years get it figured out. So there's a lot of work that we get done while we're up there and, and uh, just could use your, use your prayer. One thing that is happening though uh, right now, currently in downtown uh, Minneapolis, is that they are commissioning uh, Columbia Heights uh, Church. And so we are starting another location. And so we will have three uh, locations, uh, one downtown Minneapolis, us here in St. Paul, and another one in Columbia Heights. So Pastor Drew, if you don't know Pastor Drew, he's been here a few times. He's preached here. He's a youth pastor. Uh, he's been there uh, for probably eight or nine years. Uh, he came to Hope to plant a church uh, very very similarly the way I did. Um, it just took him eight years to figure out that he really wanted to do it and left. And so now they're commissioning him and they're sending their team uh, out. And so um, we just take a moment and just pray with me as we uh, pray for Drew and his wife and his two little girls um, and what they're going to be endeavoring with in Columbia Heights. So will you pray? 
Father, I thank you for Pastor Drew. I thank you for his heart. Um, I thank you that uh, you have specifically put his neighborhood uh, on his heart in Columbia Heights to be able to reach a community that, that needs you. And um, we all need you. And the more churches that we have and the more gospel uh, influence that we have within smaller communities, the, the, the greater opportunity that we have to reach uh, people who have never heard uh, the gospel before. And so, God, I, I pray for him. I pray for their team, uh, that there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of quirks and different things they still got to figure out. Um, but, God, I pray that um, you would just uh, be honored and glorified through that and that many people would come uh, to you through uh, their church being started uh, up there in Columbia Heights. And, um, yeah, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, uh, I am, I'm going to read, this is not, I'm not trying to be, um, this is, this is uh, something I wrote, so I'm quoting myself, which is really, really conceited and, and uh, all that fun stuff, but uh, this was a paper I wrote, ready for this, last decade, get it? Uh, yep, yep, uh, no, but it actually was a long time ago, it was probably back in 2012, and it was just on, on the church, and what is the church, and this was, uh, and as I was preparing this this sermon, I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll pull up an old paper and see if there's anything in there. And this was a paragraph that I wrote about what, what the church is. And ironically, nine years later, uh, eight years later, that, that I still believe this, that this is still true uh, for me, for us, and for our community. And I want to be able to, to kind of look at the, the points that I, that I make in this paragraph and, and really just delve into them a little bit deeper. Uh, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to read this and then, and then we're going to slowly so we look at it. it says the church can be summed up as the bride of Christ and under the leadership of qualified biblical leaders as taught in scripture. Uh, ignore the run on sentence. I wasn't a very good uh, English major. Uh, the church should be filled to the praise of God's glory with one preaching and worship two, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism three displaying a spirit of unity four, in order to love one another and five so that they will make disciples of all nations. So that's what I want to do. I just want to, I just want to dig into this. So I want to look at that first statement that the church can be summed up as the bride of Christ. When I was in uh, college, I went to a small uh, university in, in Wisconsin called Maranatha Baptist Bible College, MBBC. Um, and uh, that's where I met my, my wife. And uh, it's now Maranatha Baptist University. Uh, it's much cooler now. Um, I took a class, though, on Baptist uh, history, which I know that sounds really nerdy, but it was a, it's a Baptist school, uh, and, and it made sense. And so it was a Baptist history class, and, and, and Baptist, they kind of took an acronym, and then they're like, oh, that doesn't really fit. So they, they changed it to Brapsis, which doesn't even make sense because it's not a word. Um, anyways, so we, we kind of memorized all these different things. And, and I remember Dr. Saxton, he was the one who, who taught the class. He's actually given a lecture this next week on a Baptist uh, a British uh, Baptist uh, preacher back in Spurgeon's era a couple hundred years ago, and, and I'm not going to be going to that. I'm looking forward to seeing Dr. Saxon again. But I took his class, and I, and I had uh, this, this question, and it was burning inside of me for a really long time of what is the bride of Christ? That it's a phrase that, that is used uh, uh, quite a lot, actually, within the church, even outside of church, of looking at even just going to a wedding, and, and we talk about the bride of Christ, and we pray about the bride of Christ, and, and so I had this question of, of what, what is the bride of Christ, and so looking at different passages of Scripture, there is an assumption about what the bride of Christ is, and so a lot of people say the bride of Christ is the church, which, which I think is true, and, and it's assumed in Ephesians 5, and so I'm just going to read this uh, brief, just real, real quickly here. It says, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, and the whole point of this passage here, it's a beautiful passage for weddings. Every premarital I ever do, this is where we start. We start in Ephesians 5. 
And, but he's talking about Christ and the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless, right? So it's, it's assumed here that the church is the bride of Christ, but the only time that it's actually explicitly said is in Revelation 21, and it's bigger than just the church that the bride of Christ is, is all people who have ever put their faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and in Jesus Christ. And even before that, as we see in this passage, as they trust in Yahweh before Christ comes. And so Revelation 21, 9 through 14 says, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and said to me, and I'm not gonna get into all that and what that means, but you know, Revelation has a, has a lot of allegory, has a lot of symbolism in it. But there are things here that he's about to say. He says, come, I will show you the bride, right? This is the only time that in scripture it says, this is what the bride is. I'm gonna show you the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in a spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious, precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with the 12 gates uh, and with and angels at the gates and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so we're going old, he's going Old Testament here. The bride of Christ is, is Old Testament Israel and people who worship Jesus and believed in the promises of God all the way back then and were part of that covenant community. And in verse 13, and there were uh, three gates on the east, three in the north, three in the south, three in the west. And the wall of the city then had 12 foundations and on them were the names of 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's the bride of Christ. That the bride of Christ is all people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so that, that's, what, that's what that first statement means. Moving on, the second one. The church can be summed up as the bride of Christ and under the leadership of qualified biblical leaders as taught in scripture. That not anyone can be a pastor or an elder. Uh, there are a lot of different denominations and different people will, will call somebody a, a presbyter or a bishop or a priest uh, or a pastor or an elder. Uh, within the New Testament, it's all the same word. All right, it's the same word, and so it's just different differentiations that are made uh, for people that are, are pastors or in leadership at a, at a local church. And so that's, that's what it means, but it has to be a qualified biblical leader. It's not just anybody, but there's a lot that goes in, into this. And so I want to read Acts 21. This is the appointing of elders, that people are actually commissioned and they're sent out, just like Columbia Heights is today, that there are elders that are laying their hands on Drew that are saying, we want you to go out and we want you to preach the gospel. So Acts 14, verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and when a large number of disciples... Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. It's not normally something that people like to preach and talk about, that, that being a Christian, there's suffering, there's temptation, there's evil. And Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each of the church. That's why we talk about uh, within our community, and, and this is something that we're working on right now, is that I believe very strongly in a plurality of elders. In other words, I'm not, it's not just a one-man show, and I don't run things. Matter of fact, on the 21st, 21st, the back of the handout, the annual meeting, uh, we have annual meeting, and in that, uh, that we are uh, in a Baptist church, that we are uh, congregationally led. 
And so I don't just get, go up here and say, hey, this is how much money that we need, and this is how much money I'm going to make, and this is how much money we're going to spend. Uh, that's up to the members. And so if you're, you're not a member, um, feel free to talk to me about pursuing membership and what that looks like uh, at Hope. And so when we look at this, so we see uh, multiple elders that shepherd and guide that are being appointed. So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting commissioned them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And after going through uh, Phasida, they came to Pamphylia, sure. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attila. I guess I didn't need to uh, read that last sentence. Now, this is the terrifying part about being uh, a qualified elder. And this is the qualifications of an elder from 1 Timothy. It says, he, right, and, and this, is, this is me. And, and, I, and I read these verses, and as I was preparing this sermon, I had to, I had to examine my own heart and my life. And I, and I have to do this every once in a while. And I, as I look at these and just say, is, is this me? Is this Paul? Is this Josh? Are these men that, that would be qualified under this heading? That he is a, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be uh, an overseer or an elder or a pastor desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not giving to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to, how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that, they, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And I think even more sobering, at least for me, is when Paul then just a couple verses later in chapter 4 Right? It's kind of that phrase of do as I say, not as I do. And what Paul is saying and what I should be able to say as your pastor is, no, I actually want you to follow my example. It's terrifying. It says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. And I know I'm probably the fourth oldest person in this room, but uh, I, we're young. We're a young church and we're a young congregation. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy was probably around my age. But set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, which is kind of ironic because we're literally doing that right now. To preaching and to teaching and do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. This is, this is why we study. This is why we get into the word. This is why there are, there are doctrines and things that we teach and preach that people would say, you can't say that. That's, that's hateful. That's hate speech. That you shouldn't be able to do that. I have to be able to study the scripture and rightly divide the word of truth. And I've got to study that doctrine closely. And then it says, persevere in them. That's hard to do sometimes, right? In our, in our culture, there's things that I say again that are offensive, but I need to persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and you and your hearers. And it's something I take very seriously. And that everybody and anybody who ever stands behind this pulpit should do the same. That's who we are and that's who our elders are as well. The church should be filled to the praise of God's glory with one preaching 
and worship. So it's kind of ironic because um, today, uh, specifically this particular uh, sermon, if you will, uh, call it that, uh, is, is topical. Okay, so, so I want to I explain this, that we talk about expository preaching uh, versus topical preaching. And so if, if you grew up in the church, if you were like me at all, and, and I went to church, you know, four or five times a week, um, and, and then there was, what would happen a lot of times is, is a pastor would open up their Bible and they would read one verse, right? They would say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not flee from it. And then that would be it. And then they would proceed to list 10 reasons or 10 steps on how to raise godly children. That's a topical sermon, right? That is a way to say, hey, I'm going to take a verse or a passage because I want to say something to you. And so uh, because I want to say this thing to you, I'm going to pick passages that I think might help you explain that. When you do expository preaching, which is what we typically do, uh, that we work through a book. And the reason we do that, say, man, that's a, man we just, we've been in that book forever. We've been in Nehemiah for 12 weeks. We were in Exodus for 35 weeks and all these different things, right? First Peter for, for, for 25 weeks, all these different aspects of looking at, this is taking a long time. We do that because I can't skip a passage of scripture that when something comes up, I don't just get to say, mm, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. I want to move on from that, that these books were written as books, to be taken as a whole, and so that is why we do that. That this is not about me, it's not my agenda about what I want to say or what I think you need to hear, that I want to open the Word of God and preach that way. Um, uh, there's a, when I talk about worship, I have a pet peeve about worship uh, when I teach uh, our systematic theology class downtown. Um, that a lot of times, and I've, and I've been guilty of this too, and maybe, maybe you have, of saying, um, I, I worship God the way I drive my car. Or, or I worship God the way that I raise my kids. All those kinds of things, right? And, and I would say that's actually not true. That, that's actually, maybe, maybe, maybe this morning on the ice, you, you were worshiping. Like, you're like, I keep me safe, God, right? Actively worshiping. But you can glorify God, or you can say, in the way that I drive my car, in the way that I'm not angry, or the way that I'm not cutting people off. And for me, I actually have a button uh, because my back windshield wiper is broken off, that when I hit the button, it shoots uh, windshield washer fluid about 10 feet straight backwards. So don't tailgate me. You, you will get sprayed. Um, all right? But I can, I can glorify God in the way that I drive my car of saying, oh, I want to do this in a respectful way. I want to obey the laws. And that, that actually does give God glory. But worship, worship, just a Webster's dictionary definition is worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And then if you do a word study on this, and I did this hmm, two decades ago now, uh, way back in uh, Ot, Ot 9, the, the Naughties, the Oddies, is that what they call them? Yeah. Um, Back in 09, I, I, I actually did a, a, a big in-depth study just on the word worship and over 80 times in the, in the scriptures how it's used. Almost every time they're standing, which is why Andrew asked you to stand. It's not just, oh, this is, right? But it's not just, oh man, I'm just so comfortable worshiping God today, right? That's no, we want to stand. We want to engage our body physically with extravagant love, love, extreme submission with our mind intellectually. We use these old hymns not because uh, they're, they're popular, uh, but because the, the lyrics on them are, are deep and it makes us think. Uh, and again, I grew up singing a lot of these old hymns but we sing them in a different melody that it, it helps me uh, rethink how, what these lyrics and what these words actually mean. And so when we look at worship, the first thing that we have to ask is who or what are we worshiping? 
that everybody who has ever been born in this world worships something, that we are all worshipers. It's how we're wired. That's how God created us in the beginning to be in his image bearers, that we worship something. The question is, who are we worshiping or what are we worshiping? That could be even good things, that we can worship our spouse, we can worship our children, we can worship our job. Those are good things, but that shouldn't be what we worship with extravagant love and extreme submission. That that has owned, the only thing that that should be in our lives is God himself, that he created us with a God-sized hole that only he can fill. And when we try to worship something else and, and, and fill something within that hole, it doesn't work. But it's not just who or what, it's also where in, on, the, on the scale of priorities. That I can love my wife, I can love my kids, but God needs to be first. But that doesn't mean to abuse it, right? I'm, a, I'm your pastor, I get here early, right? I put the salt out, all those different things, but it, I'm not married to this church, right? This is not my number one priority. You are not my number one priority. And, I, and that you should say, good, that's, I'm glad, right? I love Jesus, I love God, I also love my wife, right? question is where as well when it comes to worship. And then there's a whole other argument which I'm not going to get into with uh, excellence and reverence that I think that when we look at our worship, and I, lo I absolutely love our worship, I really do. I, I enjoy it, and, and if you don't, too bad, I do. Uh, I, I like what we're doing. I like how we've, we've uh, evolved into really our own uh, here at, at Lower Town, and as we're adding new songs and, and different things, I, I really do like our music. But when we look at this, and it, where, where are our hearts when we're worshiping, right? Do we have these beautiful voices, and can we sing excellently? Are we classically trained and all these different things? Or is it a matter of, I'm going to do the best with what God has given me with a heart that loves God and loves Jesus? And so looking at Acts chapter 2, this is the kind of the proof text, if you will. And as we look at, at what the church did... And then in Acts chapter 2, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, all right, communion, and eating together, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed, performed by the apostles. And the believers were together uh, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with uh, glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Moving on here. The church should be filled with the praise of God's glory with two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Part of being Baptist, uh, which, which we are, um, are these two, these two sacraments, that there are, uh, there are other denominations that have several. Uh, the Baptist Church has two. That as we look at what Scripture teaches about what, how should we uh, conduct ourselves with one another, that we see these two, these two sacraments in Scripture. And so I'll start with the Lord's Supper. And this is something we do every week. And can I, let me just explain why we do the Lord's Supper the way we do it. Um, if the way I grew up, we, we used to pass the, pass the plates and, and everyone would take it and we would eat it together, which I want to do that when we do, um, you know, those more liturgical weeks of, of actually uh, praying together and taking the Lord's Supper together. But I want to make this as, as accessible to people as, as humanly possible, right? And we do something that's called open communion here. 
Now, you just have to be a follower of Jesus. You could step into this church and never have been to church in your life, but if you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, you are more than welcome to eat. Other people will say, no, you, you, you have to be a, a, at a church of like faith and practice, is what they would say. At another, a similar church that's part of our network or denomination, other churches would have clothes, which say you actually have to be a member of this church, uh, and they're just trying to protect what, how sacred this, this sacrament really is. And then baptism. Um, and th- so the Lord's Supper, let me just read the passage here when we look in 1 Corinthians. That's why we do this every week. This is why. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. And the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For, wh- for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in looking back at that Acts 2 of, of that in time there was a teaching of God's word, that there was a breaking of bread together. And that's why we do this. That's why we celebrate the new covenant in the blood of Jesus every week, except baptism isn't every week. We don't all get baptized every week. That's a, that's a one-time thing. But the, the reason why we, we dunk people and we, we immerse them is it is symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection as we pull them up out of the water. And as we look at Matthew 28, this is the the great commission. This is the last thing that Jesus says to human beings while he's on this earth. And he says, then Jesus called to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so that's what we practice. We practice what we call believer's baptism, that you have faith that is your own, uh, that you you come into a a knowledge and a a service of Christ, and then we baptize uh, by immersion. There are other modes out there. I'm okay with the sprinkling and and all and whatever it may be, um, and uh, but we just it seems symbolically from scripture that that baptism is the best mode, and that's a whole other sermon of its in and of itself. But we're not going to get into that. Next one: uh, displaying a spirit of unity. We're only uh, two and a half years old, uh, but uh, you'd you'd be amazed at how many church fights that I've been part of, that I've witnessed. I remember down in, in Illinois, a church I was part of, there was an original sanctuary uh, called Logan's Chapel, and uh, it was just a red brick building. But they had built around it, and so the red brick was now a hallway on the inside of the building, and and it you know looked like it was the outside of a red brick building on the inside, and so um, uh, we painted it. And, and, and a lot of people got really upset that we painted this original uh, brick that was now in the hallway. And, and it, caused a, it caused an issue, right? And there could be a lot of good reasons, I think, for people arguing and fighting when it's infidelity or, or whatever it may be. But we need to have a spirit of unity. And so just because I literally have, there's no pictures. Did you see that? I have no, there's like no jokes. There's no pictures. We're just reading the Bible, talking about Jesus. But I do have some things here that people thought about that I found online that I found quite uh, humorous and sad. Oops, I don't have them up there. Let me read them. Uh, There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Can't do it. He can't even do it. See, is that a problem? I don't know. I don't know. We should fight about it. Uh, there was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. 
Uh, a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and then deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. I'm Susan going fisticuffs with one another, uh, which is amazing. Uh, church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. <laughs> That's amazing. That's worth fighting about. I get that one. I'm cool with that. Let's fight about that one. Um, Let's see, a church argument and a vote, like they actually voted to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed, all right? So there's a, there's a vote on this. We actually have two, a big old one that I can't hardly see because it is camouflaged with the wood back there. Um, a petition to have all church staff clean shaven. Uh, that's, that's one. That was actually, I was actually part of a church that was, re- that was required. I had to shave um, uh, for work. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have uh, shoes on during the service or not. So keep shoes on. Uh, dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had crayon grape juice instead of grape juice. Um, if you remember, back when we got started, we actually had a grape Gatorade one week. <laughs> and uh, that was amazing. Uh, we ran out of grape juice, and uh, an intern went to go get, I asked him to go get grape juice, and he couldn't find grape grape juice, and so he found grape Gatorade. And when I lifted the lid off of that, it was literally just glowing blue. It was, <laughs> it was unreal. And, uh, but yeah, that was, that's okay. That's all right. We don't need to fight about it. Um, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee, which, okay, I get that. Um, major conflict with uh, when the youth uh, borrowed a crock pot that had not been used in years. I love that stuff. Uh, an argument on whether the church uh, should be allowed deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> get it? Oh, man. I mean, they got, you got nothing better to do when you start arguing about that stuff. Uh, disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. Uh, <laughs> That's unreal. And these are true, all right? These are not, these are not made up, all right? I, I, these are all documented. They're, it was on the internet. It's true. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server, and it looked too much like liquor. <laughs> Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them, and it resulted in a major split. An argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. We do. We, we accept all people. Uh, a fight over whether or not, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week, which we're not going to do. Uh, an argument over whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. Uh, I thank you. I thank you that we don't argue like that. And, I, and I, to be honest with you, there have been a few times and a few things that have come up. Um, and, and I thank you that you followed the biblical order and mandate of Matthew 18, that if, you, if a brother offends you, just go talk to him. Uh, this is something that, that, that several of you have done with me. Like, oh man, you hate what Brian does. It's not, I don't feel that way at all. I love, I do. I, I would so much rather you come and talk to me and say, hey, you said this thing or this thing was brought up or you said that in a way I'm not sure if you meant it to be said that way. Yes, you're right. Uh, I didn't mean it to be said that way. And, and I want to, let's talk about it. Let's work through this together. That's how it should be done. That is a spirit of unity. And I, and I love the fact that four different congregations meet in this space every single week. It shows the entire world, and especially this community, that, hey, Christians actually can get along. They don't have to fight about every little thing. And this is in John 17. Jesus, this is Jesus' prayer for you, for us, for his bride, for the church, for us in Hope Lower Town. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, through your message, 
that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know. That's what he's, by us, us as a church being unified, then the world, our community, Lower Town, will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, even as you have loved me. Jesus is saying he wants us to be so unified that it screams to the community there's something different about them. There's something authentic and real about these people. We need to be unified in order to love one another. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees got together, right? These are the religious leaders. They want to end Jesus. They want to end his life. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This was something that they, and we still do to this day, argue about what rules we have to follow, which rules we not have to follow, what do we need to do? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think people understand the first one. Yep, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. But the second one of love your neighbor as yourself. This is one that gets very convoluted and twisted, especially in our culture, because people just assume love means just do whatever you want. Love me the way I am. Love me for my flaws. Love me for uh, the things I do wrong. That's not what Jesus means here. The way that I love my two-and-a-half-year-old is not by giving him and letting him do whatever he wants. I love him by correcting him by disciplining him, by guiding him, by teaching him, by sitting him down and looking him in the face and say, this is why you can't hit mom in the face. That's not okay. I don't just say, hey, man, I love you, therefore you can do whatever you want. That's not what we're taught. And, that, and that's why Jesus in the Great Commission then says, teach them all I have commanded. That is the most loving thing that we can do, is teach the commandments of God and love them. Can I, uh, can I just, and this is, this is something that I don't, man, I don't, I don't know if I've ever said this ever from the pulpit. So if you get offended, I will probably never say it again. Invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. That's okay. Right? And it's okay if they don't come. Right? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I've invited my neighbors who have never come. Right? My, I think my neighbors invited me to his church more than I've invited him to my church. I love my neighbors. And I want to share the gospel with my neighbors. And I want them to hear this. And I want your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones to hear this. So can we do that together? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they, hear with, how can they be saved without hearing this message? And finally, I just want to read this again, and we'll end. So the church can be summed up as the bride of Christ and under the leadership of qualified biblical leaders, as taught in Scripture, the church should be filled with the, to the praise of God's glory with preaching and worship, two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, 
displaying a spirit of unity in order to love one another so that they will make disciples of all nations. All nations, all people. This isn't just some specific group of people that we're trying to reach. Yes, we're here in the community. We're in Lower Town that we're trying to do things in this community, in this neighborhood. Yes, but it's all people, all ethnic. Gentile, when Jesus came to save the Gentiles, Gentile simply means all nations. That's what it means. And that's what we've been called to do. And so as we look at that great commission, I've already read it, so I'm not going not gonna to reread it. But Jesus says, go and teach them all that I have commanded. And that means explaining that we're sinners. It means explaining that we need a Savior, Jesus, who has already come and has died for our sins on a cross. That he was buried and that he rose from the dead. And that his spirit that lives in him, that raised him from the dead, also lives in us. And as often as we come together and sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word, that we eat the sacrificial meal that Jesus instituted thousands of years ago. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it again like we do every single week. And I hope it doesn't get old. I really, I really do. I hope that as you tear that bread off, that you think this is, this is his body which was broken for me. I just was rereading, uh, go figure, on Martin Luther. Uh, on this, and, and he, he had an argument uh, and a church split with Ulrich Zwingli and, and, and John Calvin, and he was just pounding the table. Hoc es corpus diem, hoc es corpus diem, which means this, this is my body. I disagree with Luther's, Luther's theology on, on the Lord's Supper, but this is representative of God's body that he took on flesh and it was torn for us. And so we tear the bread to remember, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, what Jesus did for us, that we drink most often grape juice uh, as a sign that this is the blood of Jesus that was shed for us to absorb the wrath of God that we all deserve, that every single human being actually deserves. But God gave us a way. And it just sounds so easy. I just have to believe this? I actually just have to have faith? Yes, that's it. And if you try to do anything else, it's not going to work. I've tried. So that we will make disciples of all nations. So are we living in unity and love to point people to the love of God for them? Will you bow and pray with me? Father, I thank you for, even just now, and I know it just seems like a weird way to teach and preach this morning. It's not what we're used to, but God, I think we need to be reminded of why, why we're here. That these aren't just arbitrary, arbitrary points that we're not just doing this because this is what churches have done for thousands of years. But there's, there's reasons why we do these things. That it's been taught in your scripture and that we want to uphold that and we want to defend those truths, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of people laughing or not liking how we do certain things. God, would we not care? Would we care for them? But would we not get upset? Would we not get offended? And we would just give you the glory? Would we actually worship? Would we bow down? Would we get low? Would we physically engage with our bodies and our minds and extravagantly love you? Because you are worthy, and you are the only one who is worthy of that. You're the only one who is worthy of praise. You're the only one who is worthy of glory. So God, would that be true of us? So that our neighbors, our friends, our community, 
can see that we love each other and therefore we love them. So God, would you be honored now as we partake of this meal, as we look to the body and the blood that was shed for us, that anybody who follows you and is a follower of you, that they can come and partake in this meal together as we sing these songs and worship our creator who's worthy of his praise. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.